it's fundamentally about building something that's part of a community, that's part of a city, right? And and the way that, you know, as you know, the way that Houston is developed and the Woodlands as well, where, where you guys work, I mean, they're clusters, right? We, we develop in Houston in little clusters, right? These little villages, these little sub-villages, right? That, that in many ways are all kind of like self-reliant, right? You know, you can, when you look at an aerial of Houston, you can see where the projects are. Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Hello and welcome back to XN State. This is your host, JCQ. Today we host real estate developer and vice president at Tsube USA, Raymond Gabriel. Suba is a company whose work I have followed closely and respected greatly since I began studying the Houston market several years ago. Today, the company is developing an apartment project in Katy as part of a master development in partnership with the city, a master plan that Tarragon Developers is a part of. And that's actually how Ray and I met at city council meetings, basically. Raymond's background is in architecture. However, after working as an architect for a few years, Raymond decided he wanted to change seats at the table and venture into private development, joining Suba seven years ago. Today, Raymond oversees Suba's development efforts in the greater Houston area, including the planning, acquisition, capitalization, and development of the company's new residential and mixed-use projects. During today's interview, we discuss the process of developing in a city with high barriers to entry, what to look for in a property when evaluating its use for commercial development, and we discuss what the future holds for multifamily and housing environment going forward. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. Without further ado, here's today's guest, Raymond Gabriel. Ray, welcome to XN State. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. I'm doing very well here in the Woodlands, Texas. Where are you at? I'm at... uh the back conference room of my office here in the Galleria. And uh, all things considered, I think we're doing just fine here, you know, in the middle of a, of a global pandemic, you know, there's a, could be a lot worse for us. But there's, I feel like a sentiment of optimism, at least from what I'm sensing. What do you think? I think cautious optimism is the way I would characterize it. I think there's a lot of unknowns. Nobody knows how exactly we're going to come out of this. I think there's just a general sentiment that we will come out of it and um you know we will come out of it more resilient than we were before right i think houston in particular has a history of dealing with natural disasters and and uh, you know businesses and residents and you know the city in general tends to be stronger for it so it's it's still up in the air how this plays out but i think there's a, a cautiously optimistic sense both you know in our industry and just around town in general that um you know, we're going to be, we're going to be better off than, than before this. I agree completely. I actually want to talk a little bit more about that later on in the interview, but why don't we begin by giving the audience a little bit of context on, on who you are, Ray Gabriel from Vice President of Real Estate Development at Suba USA. It's a pleasure to have you here, Ray. Can you tell us a little bit? Yeah, thank about you. Thank you for having me. Background? Sure, sure. Yeah. So like, like you said, I'm, I'm currently the Vice President of Real Estate Development for a real estate development company in Houston called Suba USA. We are, uh, the company's been in Houston for close to 40 years now, 37, 38 years now, and um, is principally a multifamily developer. The sort of the bread and butter of the company historically has been class A multifamily development, primarily in Texas. Although the company 
in recent years, and especially in the time I've been with the firm, has gotten much more involved in other in other asset classes as well. We've got a sizable single family operation that's been that's been active for gosh, probably close to twenty years now. The company's built about two thousand homes, maybe even more over that time. Um, we've got a retail operation that's been somewhat dormant the past few years, but has been kicking okay. up more recently, as you know, with some stuff we're doing on the west side of town. And we've got sort of a third practice area, if you will, that's that we just think of as kind of alternative investments, by which I mean, you know, anything that doesn't fit into the first, you know, two or three asset classes that I talked about kind of goes into that alternative investment uh, bucket. And that's included everything from water parks, for instance, where we've invested in water parks to um, Right now, as you know, we're doing how, a big how hotel has that, how, conference how center facility. How have those gone, the water parks? Uh, they've gone fairly well. You know, I would be lying if I told you that they were <laughs> a really stable, you know, bullish yeah, I would imagine. Uh, asset. But um, no, we, we, we were not the developer. We invested in a couple of them over the past few years with a partner that we've done a lot of work with in the past and, and have been, been fairly successful with it. But, but it's definitely a, a niche business, the sort of amusement park entertainment world of real estate is not something that um is for the faint of heart that's for sure so yeah. it's definitely been a, a steep learning curve for us but that's like i said that's that's certainly not um your focus not of a, course yeah that's really not a focus and I mean, we we tend to be very opportunistic if we have partners who have deals that we think would be a good idea for one reason or another for us to participate in we'll we will we'll seriously consider it. and that was one of them mm-hmm. That was both a strategic partnership and a market. We markets, I should say, we we, we felt we wanted to be in it. And so, okay. So um, that would you know, that's about, an example of one of those alternative investments. When I think about Suba, I, I certainly think of you as a multifamily development company. I wasn't aware that you were involved in as many different asset types as you are. Yeah, it's um, like I said. I mean, our bread and butter, for sure. I would say, you know, sixty some odd percent of our work, our day to day work, is probably multifamily, and that's definitely the evergreen part of our business. But like I said, we're very opportunistic, and we we will pursue other assets um, as they come up. You know, I that we we've been involved with single family development, home building, and development for probably over twenty years now, and I think that had a similar origin where it was it was very opportunistic deal that came to us. This was back in the late 90s, probably maybe early 2000s through a partner, a very close partner of our CEOs. At the time, they got involved with, um, they were able to assemble a lot of land out in the west side of town at an incredibly low basis. And they spent years kind of stitching that land together. And they ended up, we, at one point, they had about 700 acres of land, I think, out wow. on the west side of town, and mo- much of which is now you know, the energy corridor. And so they spent 20 years, maybe even more developing that land. We're in the process of developing actually the last 50 some odd acres of it right now, a combination of single family and, and multifamily out wow. there. And so uh, that was just, that was an instance, you know, a long time ago where the partners had a very sort of narrow window to get involved in a um, sort of a land play that they set up to feed their pipeline for 20 years. And so over that time, they've developed, you know, single family, as I said, a lot of retail, several thousand units of apartments out there. Wow. So yeah, I think that was sort of the original nut for a lot of these different asset classes and practice areas that we've we've been involved with since then. Wow. Ray, tell us a little bit about how you got started in real estate. Your background is in architecture, is that correct? Yeah, it was quite the surreptitious path, I guess. Yeah, I'm an architect by trade. I went to architecture school and 
spent the first few years of my career working for architects and, and, um, I did it just long enough to know I, I didn't, I didn't want to do it anymore. I worked for architects long enough to, you know, to get licensed and to realize that, uh, I would probably make a better client than an architect. Was yeah. the reality of being an architect, not what you expected it to be? Yeah, I think that's fair enough. That's fair to say, you know, uh, let's keep in mind, I think context is important too, because I got out of architecture school. This was 2008, right? 2008, 2009, mm -hmm. right? As a young architect, trying to find a job, trying to complete my internship development hours, you know, trying to get, take my, my exams and, um, jobs are far and few between, right? And, you know, I ended up getting a series of jobs over that time that were tough, right? I mean, I, my first job I had was with an architect that, uh, put me on a project. We were designing an observatory facility in New Mexico. And I moved out to New Mexico for what I thought was only going to be a few months. It ended up being about two years. Okay. I, was in the, I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and um, working on this very obscure observatory facility, observatory <laughs> conference facility, with a very eccentric client. And um, I think, you know, working with a client like that, and a series of, and a series of clients subsequent to that, who were very, very sophisticated. They knew they knew more about the product we were designing than I could ever really hope to know, especially as a very young architect at the time. And so that was very frustrating to me as someone who was really just inheriting their program and their vision. You know, I was not being the capital D designer that I thought, you know, <laughs> that I thought every young architect probably thinks of themselves. That you, that you dreamed as, about as a kid. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You know, I was being, I was, I, you, you come out of school and you go to work for an architect and you, you, you interact with clients and you're basically, you become a technician, right? And, and that was, that was very disillusioning for me. And you, you, I'm doing all this in the context of, you know, the great recession, right? Where we're working on projects one day and they're gone the next day. And so there was a lot of, of angst around, you know, how, how you even really process these projects. Right. And so I think that, you know, had I maybe graduated a few years earlier, from architecture school. Maybe, maybe my experience would have been fundamentally different. Maybe I would have had more confidence in sort of the trajectory of my career and, and sort of the, the types of projects and the deal flow might have been a lot more encouraging. But it, it certainly wasn't a few years that I practiced. You know, the practice of architecture, as you sort of alluded to a minute ago, bears very little resemblance to an architectural education in any market though and i want to ask you is that do you think that is something that has always been the case or that the real estate industry has transitioned as to where the architect's role has changed drastically and maybe become more standardized i think to a certain extent that that probably has always been the case i think the real estate industry probably over the past Certainly, the past 10 years, maybe it's been going on for longer. I think as real estate, as the real estate industry has, is, has sort of institutionalized, it has definitely industrialized the practice of architecture as well. And I think, you know, you could point to plenty of examples, both of real estate companies and design firms that, that have not followed that path, that have kind of maintained some level of sort of really, you know, innovation driven and, and design focused and, and that they've developed reputations around that. But I think as, as real estate has institutionalized over the past probably 10 or 20 years, I think the design world has definitely 
had to change. And you can you can see that when you look at any any major real estate project, certainly the bigger they get, the more institutional they get. The design firms are of a scale now that was not the case probably 20 or 30 years ago, right? I mean, the, the, many, many of the big architecture firms have built businesses and business models that focus on kind of full project delivery, complete project delivery, right? Soup to nuts. And, you know, all the way up to like graphic design, right? Where they're designing the, the brochures for the leasing company, right? And so, so that's a very extreme sort of example of where some firms have gone. But I think in general, I want to go back to your, your question, your, your point about has it always been this way with design firms? I think in general, architecture school and architecture education is, is in my opinion, a very versatile education. You know, it, it's teaching students a very unique, very powerful problem solving methodology, right? You're, you're, learning, you're learning how, you're learning a very kind of collaborative and iterative way to solve problems. It's, it's kind of teaching you to reflexively have this kind of nonlinear way of thinking about really abstract problems. And the work you do in an architecture school or an architecture studio, it allows you to go and address any number of not just design problems, but you know, but business problems as well with a really unique way of problem solving. And when you go to work for as an architect, as a professional architect, and you're interacting with clients, you are not usually invited to solve a lot of these problems with those skills. Those problems, those questions have already been answered, right? You're inheriting the program. You've been given the answer, and now you're being asked to, to um, sort of put pen to paper, so to speak, and, and puzzle it together, you know? And in a lot of ways, I think that the developer's job is more an architectural education prepares you more to be a developer than the than the architect in that process because the developer is the one who's studying at the beginning of the day you know who's studying the site who's studying the market who's coming up with different programming scenarios right who's coming up with the vision the high level the meta vision for the stuff and then giving it to the architect and asking the architect to test it right to make it happen. And that's fundamentally what you were doing in architecture school, right? Um, you, you were thinking about these really high-level, kind of heady, abstract problems and trying to find a solution to, you know, whatever it is, a land use problem or a building problem. And that's not something that the capital A architects tend to do, um, at least not right out of school. And that was, that was, I think, one of the things that began getting me to think more seriously about, about pivoting a little bit um, from, an architect, from being an architect. How did you make that transition? Were you actively looking to make that um, jump from architect to developer, or was it something that just happened? No, I knew I was not happy doing what I was doing as an architect, and I knew I knew I wanted to make some kind of career change. I didn't really know what that what that would be. Fundamentally, I knew I liked designing things. I like having a lot of the conversations that were taking place in the studio and with clients, you know, regarding mm -hmm. things like, like I said, like land use issues, like, like programming issues, you know, a lot of the policy and a lot of the economic discussions that were taking place are taking place peripherally to the architecture studio. And we just get little, you know, gobbits of it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I enjoyed being a part of that. And I wanted to find a way to become a more central part of that. I didn't know what kind of job that, that would be, though. So I, you know, I went back to school after working for a few years, and I, I ended, up, ended up studying uh, urban planning and finance in graduate school 
thinking that, you know, it would, it would allow me to keep kind of one foot in the door, you know, urban planning, you know, the design planning and design world and allow me to kind of try to build a connection to the broader kind of enabling institutional framework that design and, and building relied on, right? The finance world. And I came out the other side of that, getting a little bit closer to where I am now working as a developer. But in between leaving school, leaving graduate school and, and my job here, I, I spent a little bit of time working for, I had two jobs in between there, two short, shorter term jobs, one working for a regional planning agency up in Boston, which was focused primarily on designing kind of policy solutions to a lot of development issues that a lot of cities and towns in and around Boston were having, right? Policy issues, development issues related to things like transportation, housing production, public health, all these things that, you know, really designers, planners, developers have to deal with on a daily basis whenever they look at a piece of property, right? Whenever they come up with a design. So, so I had an opportunity, I spent about a year working with this regional planning agency working with cities, working with developers, working with large institutions like universities and, and hospitals, trying to create sort of or, or create and communicate their different interests, their different stakeholder interests in in how these cities and towns should be changing development policies, right? It could be changes to zoning codes, could be changes to their transportation networks. Right. And that was very interesting. That was a really high level view of the world of development, right? Everything that development touches somehow. Um, Almost from the other side of the table, right? From the, uh, was that yeah, more that's right. from, from the from, public? From the policymaker. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. I mean, this was definitely closer to the, to the, I mean, we were not a government organization, but we definitely had, you know, we worked with governments, with, with municipalities and special districts, of course. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had to reconcile both the public and the private interest in a lot of these, with a lot of these projects, right? And it was very, very interesting. The, was the, the, that was in, in Boston? That was in Boston, yeah. I'm sure there and, are some cities where the public interest is more plays more of a vital role in terms of in, in developments. For example, here in Houston, and a lot of our developments, Houston tends to be on the less regulated side, right? Yeah. Of things. Yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. I mean, and, you know, I tell folks this half jokingly, but it, but it is true at the end of the day. I mean, I, I probably have seen more deal flow in the seven years or so that I've been here in, in Houston than I would have seen in probably twice the amount of time in Boston for the exact same reason. You know, the, the time frames involved with projects in around Boston, especially projects of any significant scale are just, you know, are just incredible. And, you know, it's a function of, of just you know, as you said, there's a lot more regulation, but there's more regulation, of course, because there's a lot less space. The resources are, there's not as many resources, right? You've got to be, you've got to be very strategic and careful in how you develop the land that you have when you don't have a lot of it. And Houston's, you know, for better or for worse, has, <laughs> seems like an infinite amount of land, right? It just goes on forever. And so the land resources and the, the transportation networks and all that stuff that, that we have to navigate in and around Boston are just are just much much more complicated. A lot more stakeholders, a lot more uh, vocal stakeholders in a lot of those towns as well. So I, I had a lot. Of, I had a great experience there. It was a limit only about a year, but I had a. It was a. It was an eye opener for me to kind of see how all these different interests and stakeholders have to work together and have to kind of jockey for position to get, you know, even what seemed to be the most modest changes made to their laws or to some development projects, you know, extending a piece of the, 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 uh, the T, you know, a stop 
for, for instance, you know, or, or having a hospital build an annex, you know, one town over requires an incredible amount of political and legal and economic coordination. And from there, I spend a, a short amount of time actually working for an affordable, affordable housing company, also in okay. Boston, um, which was very, very interesting. Did they do development? They consulted with developers. Right? Okay. So this was, affordable, the Affordable Housing Institute is a, actually an international consulting group that does development and policy consulting for mostly developers, but also governments. And that was, was similarly you know, enlightening um, mm-hmm. how and those how, two jobs how, seem to me like almost an extension of your MBA. They, they really, they, there's a lot of, I mean, I was amazed at how applicable a lot of the policy and finance stuff that, you know, I studied in, in school was immediately to a lot of these issues, right? Now, of course, it's not as, you know, it's not as intellectual and abstract, abstract as it was in school, but, mm-hmm. but the, these ideas and these strategies are, were immediately recognizable to me, you know, after having only been out of school for a few months or a year or so. Uh, like and they also so, finished your, culminated your preparation to enter the world as a developer. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I, I think both of those jobs, even though they were brief, gave me a lot of good background in, you know, the politics and the policy and the, the sort of networking that is required mm-hmm. of any developer, right, mm-hmm. on the private side. And so, yeah, from there, I mean, I, I spent some time with both of those groups, realized that, you know, frankly, on a personal level, the, the bureaucracy and the timescales involved with a lot of these things were just too harrowing for me. And I was eager mm-hmm. to, I was eager to, to um, see a little bit more action, so to speak, mm-hmm. and work on more deals. You know, I was, I was eager to, to touch a lot more stuff. And so I found my way to, um, to Suba from there, which was a, you know, a company headquartered out of Houston that was at the time, you know, this was 2012, this 2013, I guess it was, that was doing a lot of different stuff at the time. And that was very, very exciting. And so that was my first sort of introduction to the world of, Suba was my first introduction to the world of, you know, strictly sort of private um, for-profit development. Mm-hmm. How has your role changed in those six years from when you started in the company back in 2013 to now? What are some of the things that you've learned along the way and how has your role progressed accordingly? That's a good question. I mean, the, you know, we're, we're a pretty small shop at the end of the day. You know, so I think th- how the role has progressed has been, I mean, it certainly has, but it's a little blurry because we wear a lot of different hats every day. And so, you know, in, I would say, you know, the first year or so I was with the company, I guess my focus was a lot more on existing deals in the pipeline, right? Processing deals that we had already, one of the principles that already sort of teed up. And so that meant, you know, working through the due diligence process and, and um, you know, working with our construction company and working with, with our architects. It was a lot of that, a lot of that base work had already been done. Over the years, I would say that, uh, while I'm still involved with all of that, um, the the initial deal setup, the the acquisition phase, the site selection, all that has become a greater part of my my job, if that makes sense. So so it's no it's I've come to take a more central role in kind of filling that pipeline conceptually anyway, right? So I mean it's it's not a huge distinction, but I think the distinction is really just in the the length of leash, I guess, that I've gotten over the years. Um, in terms of when my when I when I jump into the deal, so you you already gave us a good idea of what kind of products Suba focuses on. 
Do you focus as well across the board in investment strategies, for example, ground up development, acquisitions, value add, or what's your the strategy that you focus in? Yeah, we focus primarily on on ground up. I would say, you know, honestly, eighty something percent of what we do is ground up new development. And yeah, I mean, we my job starts with um, yeah with the site selection, right? With the the general region we want to be in, and then the submarket, and then the, mm-hmm. the you know the level of dirt. So, do you, are you also involved in the due diligence, like the market intelligence research behind making those focusing down on certain markets and certain submarkets? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we we'll spend a lot of time. I mean, I, honestly, half of it is is. We've been operating, the company's been operating in Houston for close to four years. They've, we've got a pretty good idea. There's a pretty, there's a pretty serious amount of institutional knowledge at the company about just the city and the region in general. And so we mm-hmm. have a pretty good understanding of, of where we want to be when. Um, so I don't think it's as scientific or as deliberate as we might be if we were going into uh, a, different, a completely a new, new, new city. Markets, yeah. yeah. But at the submarket level, I, I think it is. I think we are every bit as deliberate and calculating as we would be anywhere else. Uh, mm-hmm. Just because, you know, as you mentioned, Houston is famous for for having, you know, having no zoning and very few regulations. It's easy to come and go. Um, there are very few barriers to entry, but it's very submarket dependent. You know, even within the city of Houston, there are submarkets in Houston that that can still be very tricky to develop in. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, suburbs of Houston that can be very tricky to develop in because what would be Houston, some of those examples? Of you know, we, so we were the first company, we were the first multifamily developer to develop apartments in the city of Sugarland. Okay, and we've since done three. We're trying to do four, and we're the only ones in the city proper of Sugarland to do that. And the city of Sugarland, as you probably know, is is every bit as difficult to develop in as you know some of the most rigorously zoned suburbs of, of the Northeast. And we, it took us years to sort of navigate that entitlement process. And it wasn't because there was no opportunity for us to develop elsewhere in Houston. It was because we saw the city of Sugarland as a very strong submarket to mm-hmm. be in, right? With uh, extremely high barriers to entry, exactly. Extremely high barriers to entry within spitting distance of, of downtown Houston, you know, very uh, high, high uh, yeah, demographics. Yeah, high, yeah, very strong demographics, high incomes, new jobs moving there, uh, right? So the fundam- the fundamentals were there, and when you dial down uh, into the data, I mean, it was it was even more striking. And there were a lot of other folks who would like to have developed there as well, but the city is very selective about how and when they develop, right? And so. Uh, you know, it was a very it was a very long process for us to build up those relationships with the city itself and with certain neighbors and other developers in in, in town. And um, you know, we had to we did our first one and well, I take it back. The Suba did its first multifamily deal in Sugarland in probably the mid two thousands. It was a condo okay. project, kind of project, mixed use condo project right downtown into the city hall. That was the first one. And I think that was probably the most important one because it got us on their short list for future developments, future multifamily developments in the city. You, you began developing the relationship with the city. That's right. That's right. So about five or six years later, when 
there was another multifamily site or a site that the city was considering to zone multifamily, we were called first. And so we did the second deal. This was, I guess, 2012, 2013. This is right around the time I started with the company. And um, that was another, it was another great success for us at the time and involved, you know, a lot of extensive work with the city and the master developer, you know, to get the, the zoning right. And then two years later, we did a third one next to the ballpark, next to the, the baseball field mm-hmm. in Sugarland. So, you know, each one of those probably required, I don't know, two years, maybe even more of pre-development work. A lot of that, again, working with the city of Sugarland, working with the master developer, you know, I'm crafting these PDs, these overlays uh, with the city, with the planning department. What do you mean? To make PDs? sure that... So each one of these is a, has involved a a zoning overlay district, right? Called a, a planned unit development or a planned development district, a PDD. And that's basically a carve out, right? The city, the planning department looks at their zoning map and they, they draw a box around several tracts of land and they exempt it from the existing zoning. Okay. And they say this, they, they're acknowledging that this is a special, they are changing the zoning on these parcels for a special reason. And it's usually, you know, there's got to be, there's usually some kind of economic development reason for it. And they design a whole new zoning code for just those, just that district, right? And it can be a, a rather laborious process. You're coming up with all new land use ordinances that prescribe, you know, completely different bulk and density standards and than the and you have neighbors. Code. You have neighbors that and are neighbors to to having multifamily projects being built beside their houses. That's right. That's right. And as you can imagine, you know, you touched on it. The neighbors might not be thrilled about that. They might not be thrilled about the fact that our parking ratios are different than theirs are, or whatever it is, or that our you know our again our bulk and density is different than the standards they were held to. I mean, these are all perfectly fair complaints, but for one reason or another the public and the private sectors have come together to acknowledge that in order to develop this area, some things have to change. And that's what each one of these projects actually had involved in Sugarland, some kind of change to the zoning ordinance to allow for the development to, to occur. Mm-hmm. So um, you, you sort of have to make a decision um, when evaluating those kinds of markets on whether you estimate how much additional amount of time and resources you're going to have to spend going through that process and the additional risks that are added, you weigh that against the benefits of being in a submarket that has limited competition yep. and then sort of decide whether it's worth it or not. That's right. I mean, it's that strategy, that type of a deal, that amount of time, that's hard to pitch to someone in other neighborhoods of Houston, certainly in the city of Houston itself right now, uh, just because you know there may be other opportunities. The opportunity cost is, is quite high when you're tying up time and money on a pre-development effort that could span a couple of years when, you know, the city of Houston, as I said, is, is renowned for having lots of opportunity, lots of developable parcels that you can kind of jump into and jump out of at any time. You know, if there's, again, you know, this is why it's so profitable to spend five or 10 years in pre-development in the middle of Manhattan or Boston, right? There's simply not a lot of opportunity to do it. So, you know, you can spend years of your life and millions and millions of dollars working with the city of New York and working with neighborhood groups and historic preservation and environmental groups 
you know, you can kind of bump off the guardrails a little bit, but you're, you've got some confidence that there's not going to be a whole lot of land available to be developed during that process. And that's, that's something that I think most of Houston can't say. So you have to be a little more strategic about it in the, the greater For Houston sure. area. For sure. Walk me through, Ray, something I, I want to ask you is I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into the due diligence piece for a particular property. What's, in your opinion, the ideal piece of property, a property that, I mean, and I, and I know that these don't exist, but a property that is perfect with no problems or obstacles that you foresee towards the development of the property, what would be an, an ideal property that you look for? Well, in general, from a kind of high level market location standpoint, we, we tend to look for multifamily projects. We tend to look at sites that are close in suburbs to Houston that are in densifying suburbs, right? Or in areas that are about to be densified, right? They're, they're going to be, they're going to be communities that are about to bring a lot of commercial amenities to the area, right? So we want to locate within a master development or co-locate next to an existing development that has a lot of, a lot of opportunities for residents to, you know, to shop, to eat, to go to work, right? Um, the days of having kind of a, an isolated greenfield garden style apartment, I think are probably long behind us. So we like to be close to things. We like to be close. I mean, we'd like to, we see our amenity package as not just what's in sort of the, the four walls of the building, right? It's, it's what's outside of the, of the site as well, right? Access to all the stuff that you and I probably want, right? Restaurants, grocery stores, bars, entertainment, shopping, you know, yeah, the connection to nature, right? I mean, these are things, you know, so there are a lot of those things that we don't control necessarily as the multifamily developer in the project that we rely on to make the deal feasible, right? And so we, in a perfect world, you know, we like a site that is either located within an existing sort of mixed use development or, you know, within earshot of it so that, you know, we Community have amenities. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, exactly. it is, it is fundamentally about building. It's fundamentally about building something that's part of a community. That's part of a city. Right. And, and the way that, you know, as you know, the way that Houston is developed and the woodlands as well, where, 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 where you guys work, I mean, they're clusters, right? We, we develop in Houston in little clusters, right? These little villages, these little sub-villages, right? That, that in many ways are all kind of like self-reliant, right? You know, you can, when you look at an aerial of Houston, you can see where the projects are, right? It's not this accretive pattern of, of urban development like, like on the, you know, the East Coast, right? Where you can see how, how the city has grown over time, right? It's, it's kind of followed a logical pattern of growth. It's kind of accreted out of a central a CBD. We've got like six CBDs, right? And then within each one of those areas, you know, there are all these sort of little bubbles, you know, that have evolved and developed and then redeveloped. And so, you know, it's not really a matter of being centrally located to the, the you know, the, the capital CBD. It's, it's a matter of being part of one of those villages, right? And, and that's and a good way to way put it. To, finding a way to, to knit your way into it and become part of that community. And that's, that's fundamentally what, the, what residents are going to want. And, you know, when we talk, when we work with, with mass developers who might be doing the retail or the office component, whatever it may be, they're just as dependent on us to bring 
the residential density to those developments to patronize their their development. We, we provide the early customers for a lot of that retail, that commercial stuff. So there's definitely a codependency there. And those are the kinds of sites that we we prefer. You know, again, they can be far and few between, but we, you know, through just, again, the company's 38-year history, you know, we have got a lot of strong relationships with other developers and asset developers and cities that, that allow us to kind of get the first look at some of these these opportunities. And what about, Ray, in terms of the dirt itself, what do you look for in a piece of dirt that you like in terms of uh, when you're conducting your due diligence and searching for, I mean, for example, you would say one that has no easements, that has that's connected to utilities or what yeah, things yeah. that you I look mean, for? This may not be that that enlightening, but I mean, yeah, you, you, you kind of touched on it, right? Not, no, no environmental issues, right? We'd like, you know, easy access to utilities. We don't want to have to spend a whole lot of time and money bringing, you know, utilities to the site, literally good dirt. I mean, you, you, you know, uh, <laughs> soil around Houston is not great. Uh, there's usually a lot of engineering issues with, with the dirt itself. So not having to, not having to strip and import a lot of dirt, you know, these, this, these are like, this is like a unicorn site, right? So there's a lot of, there are a lot of engineering things that we need to that we need to look into before we we move forward, even with the perfectly located site, to make sure that uh, we're not going to you know shoot ourselves in the foot with some kind of you know terrible engineering issue. But for sure, utilities are a big one. Both public and private utilities, access to those are are huge. You got to confirm you've got access, easy access to those. Quality of dirt, elevation, huge, especially in Houston because the dirt sucks and um, it floods. City floods, yeah, no floodplain, right? Um, yeah, no floodplain. I mean, and and again, you know, these the all these things are we've developed sites that are have problems with all of those things. You know, we've we've developed sites that have no utilities, are you know well in the floodplain. We need to strip and refill. We need to fill. You know, we need to do a loamer on it, fill it above the the five hundred year floodplain, and we've done that, but. It needs to be worth it, right? Again, this goes back to the opportunity cost thing we talked about a few minutes ago, right? That site and that submarket have to be pretty special if you're going to spend that kind of time and money. And so, if we find ourselves in a situation in a market or you know with a partner, for instance, who we think is strong enough to go through that effort, then we'll do it. Otherwise, we try to limit the number of engineering diligence items we have to deal with, right? It's it's okay if we have one or two of those things to deal with. It's not okay if we have all, you know, six or seven mm-hmm. of them to deal with. Yeah, and it's uh, it depends on a case-by-case basis, right? It depends on the sub-market. In Sugarland, you may be willing to go through more headaches and a little bit more development risk yeah. than you would in, in other sub-markets. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, as you know, as you you, you know, we, we dealt with a lot of these issues out uh, in our project out in Katy, right? Um, yeah, let's talk a little and, bit about, about that one. That that was a situation where we had, um, I think we dealt with all of those engineering issues, actually. <laughs> We're still dealing with them, aren't we? Um, yeah, the, yeah. the one in particular, right? The no access to electricity, to electric power. Yeah, yeah, that was new, I think, for everyone, including the city of Katy. But, you know, we, we puzzled our way through it. That was something that, you know, it was, it was odd. It was odd for a number of reasons. The scale of the project, I think, is what caused sort of this domino effect with the dry utilities, with 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 power, with Centerpoint in particular, right? Where we were developing, gosh, 60 acres of land in six or seven phases, right? 
Phil, and, t- sorry to interrupt you, Ray. I just want to give the audience a little bit of context. Then this is actually how Ray and I met. We have a, a an office condominium project in Katy that we're Terragon Developers is developing. And our neighbor is Suba. They're developing a multifamily project as part of this mixed-use development in which the city of Katy is involved, in which Suba is developing all kinds of uses, right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's funny because when we acquired the land, we acquired it, we, we assembled that land at different phases at different times. So we, over the years, acquired about 60 acres of land. And we've got two multifamily sites we're developing. We've got a mixed-use retail site, you know, about, about 200,000 square feet of retail. We've got a hotel conference center we're developing. We've got a single-family site, right? There's a lot of moving parts. We assembled all this land over the past several years, five years or so. And, you know, when you do, and we approach the acquisitions as separate acquisitions. So we, we, we acquired, you know, just for instance, a an initial tranche of land that was X number of acres, right? And we that was its own acquisition and a, its own entity. We had a, an own, a separate entity by that. And we did our due diligence with the city and with the consultants and with the utilities just focused on that, right? And so when we go to the city of Katy or when we go to Centerpoint, for instance, we said, you know, we are acquiring this site that's, you know, whatever, six acres and we want to put this many units of apartments on it and you know we need utility capacity for this and then you know a year or two later we do the same thing for another site and we say well this is an 11 acre piece of land we're going to put some mixed-use retail on it we need utility capacity for x y and z and then once we did all of that <laughs> you know center point you know looks down at this from a higher level perspective and realizes that we have now assembled 60 acres with all these different uses that are going to be requiring service within a couple of years of each other. And they don't have, they don't have the infrastructure in place to service it. Even though when they looked at it kind of at a, at a, in, a, in a silo, they thought, yeah, we can service 320 units of apartments. We can, we can extend service for that. And when we, you know, when we looked at it independently, the shopping center, we can extend service for just that. Uh, it was not, and there's, you know, there's certainly plenty of uh, blame, if you will, to probably go around. But when you looked at it as one project requiring service within a couple of years of each phase, the utility capacity wasn't, wasn't there. It was just, I mean, nowhere close, right? And so we had to go through this effort with the city and with the center point to find a way to bring power to the site from a substation that wasn't very convenient, <laughs> that was on the other side of a lake, right? and get it across the lake and then kind of snake it through our master plan to hit all of our different phases, including, including tarragons. And, you know, how is this going to be phased and who is going to pay for it? And, you know, we were already under construction with certain phases of the, the horizontal development out there. So how is, how are we going to coordinate all this with that? I mean, it was, it was a bit of a, it was a startling few months really. Uh, and, and it, it involved a, uh, a lot of work with the city. They were, they, you know, they've been a great partner for all of us to come in and help us broker that deal with Centerpoint, right? Where to, you know, where the city basically had to step in and play master developer in the situation, where where Centerpoint was requiring a lot from us from each of the, the private property owners because they wanted to set, they wanted to design and build 
their facilities in such a way that could service a lot of non-Suba and Tarragon-owned property, right? So the city had to step in and mediate that and, and play play master developer in a way that they might not ordinarily have done uh, because basically a private utility was asking private property owners to pay for utilities that would be used by other people, right? And so um, we had, you know, what ended up being, I don't know, probably our third or fourth development agreement with the city of Katy to help build and finance that that component. Um, I'm happy to say it's it's they're under construction now. They're going they're going <laughs> yes. on it. Um, they're they're you know expect to be done with with that installation sometime this summer. But but it was it was a pretty Herculean effort getting that agreement mm-hmm. hammered out with the city of Katy and with Sri even Lake, even though the, the even though the city home. is very much involved on the Katy Boardwalk project, right? And it's always been in their best interest to get this thing going as fast as possible and it's a project that's going to be great for the city but even then these are efforts that take a lot of coordination and time more than anything that's what what ended up being the the risk factor was a uh, we didn't know how much time it was going to take mm-hmm. again this is this is one of those development risks that that it's it's always very hard to predict and um i think you know, I think we probably lost a little over a year in terms of our total time frame with our with just our first phase. And I think that um, you know, honestly, it's hard to know had we figured this out or had we identified this problem much earlier on. It's hard to know how much more quickly we could have come up with a solution because, frankly, it really did require a city intervention to get it to work just to make financially to make it work right um, this this was financially and logistically i mean we were talking about you know building facilities in you know property that was not our own public property and and, and uh, in existing streets i mean it was it was not the amount of players involved is, That's right. is what complicates the it, whole thing it really did require sort of a centralized entity that had jurisdiction over all of us to coordinate it and so i mean that required us to work with the city in a way that we hadn't expected. And it's not, you know, you could say work with the city as if it's just, you know, one rational individual. It's not, it's, it's dozens of people you have to get on board. Right. So that exactly. you've got to, you know, you've got to, you know, you start with, you know, you start with the city manager and the planning department and you've got to work through all of the, really all the elected officials. You've got to work through the development authority and the city council and planning and zoning. I mean, it required the finance director. I mean, it requires you to whip a lot of votes. Yep. Uh, and, um, you know, it's not an easy thing. I, so it's, you know, it's not like me calling you and saying, you know, we need you to think about cooperating with us on, on this. It's, it's, you know, it's, it, no, one, it's you might get one of those going guys to who, city council meetings, making presentations, getting people to vote, bringing in the engineers that are, that, who are designing the whole infrastructure is going to be put in place and ev- having everybody raise their opinion and provide their expertise and then putting it up for a vote. So it's a, it's, it's a long process. No, it, it, it really is. Like I said, it was a real sort of Herculean effort uh, to get this done. And, and um, you know, at the end of the day, looking back at it, when I look back at the process we went through to convince the different levels of the city government to cooperate with us, that actually did not end up being that bad. There was actually, the intent was good. They understood very clearly how this should work. It then ended up being a matter the of the execution. The execution, that's right. So 
legally, how is this thing going to be structured? Financially, how was it going to be structured? Right. And then, you know, how, how are the engineers going to put this thing in the ground with all the, the conflicts that were already in place? I mean, so I think we came to a meeting of the minds fairly, well, it's relative, but fairly quickly. And then it was a matter of kind of hammering out the legal and financial and engineering technicalities. Yep. Something, Ray, that I would like to ask developers that I bring on the show is what's something that you are keeping an eye on, something that you see as a potential opportunity in the market in the years to come, something that you're starting to look at? Well, so just real estate in general? In real estate in general. Real estate in general. Yeah. Where, where do you see a, a potential interesting market opportunity in the next few years? Well, in terms of trends and how you see things changing in terms of maybe economic environment, maybe demographics, customer behavior. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you asked me a couple months ago, I, I, I typically, and this is still true, but it was usually my go-to up until a few months ago. I was very interested in, in looking at how cities and developers were developing data centers and where they were doing that and how they were doing that. You know, that's a essential piece of infrastructure now to any city. And it's only getting bigger every week, it seems, you know, that those the demands on data and, and computing and, and access to data, especially in, in densifying areas is, is increasing. So, you know, how we how and where we build those facilities is, is very interesting and, and can be very complicated. That I think is a will continue to be a growing part of real estate, a, a growing part of real yeah. estate. How do we accommodate this infrastructure to densifying neighborhoods and even and rural neighborhoods, frankly, that, that don't have access to a whole lot of data and broadband. But I think, you know, again, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, right? Nobody knows what the, the real lasting impact to this are going to be. I think we're going to see a lot of changes across almost every asset class for the next few years. I think, you know, you could look at office space and I think prognosticate about how the office culture and office design is going to change for the next few years. I mean, we've already been seeing, you know, office developers for decades have been seeing a, a decline in the amount of space, you know, amount of space per worker for a long time, right? I think that's going to be accelerated now. You know, the idea that we might be seeing, you know, fewer people coming into the office or shift work or whatever, whatever it may be, uh, I think is going to change, change how we kind of lay out offices and how we monetize offices. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that was an irrevocable change for the next five to 10 years. Retail is going to have a hard time. I think retail's always, retail's been struggling for decades as well, right? I mean, we've, we've, this is not a surprise to anyone, especially soft goods retail, right? This, this really is going to accelerate that as well. So I think those are more cautionary comments than anything else with regard to kind of existing uh, asset classes. I, I don't know how it's going to affect multifamily. I, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. You're right. That, that's probably where the impact is less clear or harder to predict at this time. I mean, I think, you know, we've, we've seen in, in the multifamily space for, again, years now, decades, really, you know, a shift to, um, and this is driven both by culture and, and economics, you know, a shift to, um, to renting. Is that what you're going to say? To, yeah, to, to renting and, and across all demographics, right? I mean, we, you could look at, you could look at our renter profile. And it's kind of a dumbbell demographic, right? You've got young folks, you know, you've got people in their 20s and 30s, and you've got basically their parents in their 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, probably. You know, you've got this dumbbell demographic, and they're, they're, both of those groups are looking for the same thing, right? They're looking for 
they're looking for less space, kind of a lock and leave place to live, fully amenitized. They're looking for, you know, kind of access to things. They're looking for access instead of space, right? Um, so we're, we've seen for a long time now, and it's picked up over the past 10 years with things like, you know, Ali and Airbnb and stuff. You've seen this shift in multifamily to housing as a service and not, you know, housing as a, as just a dwelling or a commodity, right? And so I think that's likely to stay with us for, a, you know, until it's debunked by some, some new economic and yeah, social you're, shift, you're, right? That's a, that's a good point. I hadn't heard of that term before, housing as a service, but we value, I think, more and more convenience. That's, I mean, I certainly value convenience a lot, and that's one of the bigger benefits I see in, in renting. It's just a lot more convenient, it, it, no, I, I think that's that's right, and and I think you're looking at a lot of again, that realization is is not just unique to you know younger folks or people right out of college or millennials, or whatever. I think you know the baby boomer generation, which has historically been the biggest you know demographic in the country that's kind of been moving the economy and the housing market, right? Than the baby boomers, they've been downsizing for years now, and increasingly that has meant moving into some kind of multifamily facility, whether it be an apartment, a rental apartment, or a condo, or even assisted living. I mean, the idea that the future for that generation and and, and their kids is going to be the future of housing for those generations is going to be sort of, you know, four-bedroom homes or the yard is is has been dwindling. And it's been interesting to watch even some of the largest home builders in the country respond to that trend as well, because you can look at some of the biggest home builders in the country, Lonar and Toll Brothers, and, and they have made shifts both on the single family side to respond to that, where they're trying to get more, you know, smaller, more efficient housing models in their pipeline in the form of townhomes or just smaller patio homes. But they've also gotten involved in a very big way in the multifamily space, right? So Lonar and Toll Brothers now over the past God knows how many years have really substantial multifamily divisions, right? And they're building they're building all sorts of multifamily, right? They're getting involved with every aspect, you know, class A for rent, apartments in, in some core markets, assisted living. So, you know, I think it's not I don't take my word for it as, you know, someone who works for a, a multifamily developer. I think I think this is a trend that's been occurring for decades now and is really picking up steam. Maybe it, I, I think, you know, the the fire may have really been started with the 2008-2009 crisis and just been, you know, slowly creeping up, you know, over the past 10 years or so as, as you know, again, more young people are looking to get out on their own and, and their parents are looking to retire. So um, I think that pattern and those preferences are not likely to change anytime soon. And we've, you know, we definitely see that in every new development we do and we try to respond with our designs best we can with every new with every new one, um, you know, our, our units, it seems, our unit designs, for instance, have seemed to incorporate a lot more small units in the past couple of years, you know, efficient, small one bedrooms and efficiency units and a lot next to bigger units, right? So we're, we've actually kept our average square footage not terribly unchanged. Maybe it's actually come down a little bit since, you know, over the past 10 years or so, but, but we're seeing people either not want a whole lot of space and have to pay for a whole lot of furniture and stuff or people who are maybe moving in to an apartment for the first time in a long time from a big house and they actually Replacing do want their homes. Okay. Yeah. They do want, they do want a lot of space and some storage and space for the grandkids or whatever it is. That's very, very interesting. 
Ray, are you ready for the fire round? Just a couple of quick questions. All right. I'm, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. All right. Let's do it. <laughs> First question. What's your favorite book that we likely haven't heard of? That's a hard question. I don't know that I have a favorite book. One of the most, most interesting books, most impactful books I think I could recommend that maybe you hadn't heard of is, is um, it's called Crabgrass Frontier. By, Crab, by, uh, Crabgrass yeah. Frontier. Yep, by Kenneth Jackson. It's, it's this really interesting sweeping history of the development of, of um, the American suburbs. And it, and it looks at kind of patterns of development and processes of housing delivery in the U.S. over the past you know, 75 years or so, and it compares it to, to how other suburbs have developed in places like Europe and Japan. It's very, very interesting. That sounds definitely very interesting. And I'm excited that it's about real estate, so I'm definitely going to look it up. <laughs> Another question, what's the person who you look up to the most in the world of real estate? Somebody who you've learned a lot and maybe uh, someone who you've worked with or a public figure that <sighs> we all know of? Okay, well, I don't, I don't work with him. But um, he is someone that I admire, and I admire the work that he does and the company he's built. Jonathan Rose is a, okay. is a developer out of New York, does, does work all over the country, but he's sort of a mission-focused developer, does, does a little bit of everything across the housing spectrum, you know, market rate, mixed-use stuff, affordable stuff, very design-focused company that does a lot, of, a lot of good community development. What's the name of the company? Uh, Rose Associates, I think. Okay. Do you have, Ray, a parting piece of advice for our audience? God, I need to think of a good fortune cookie uh, <laughs> a piece of advice here. No. Piece of I, advice or a lesson you know, that you've learned? One of the lessons, one of the most valuable lessons, I guess, I probably learned. It's not unique to real estate by any means, but it was something that I remember learning fairly quickly in, in architecture school was, was to, um, to get comfortable with failing quickly. If you're going to fail recognize it early on and, and try to move on, right? And it, 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 it's a mentality that I think serves probably most people well because it prioritizes sort of efficiency over perfection, right? So I think that was a, that's a design thinking mentality that uh, is easily applicable to business and management as well. Fail quickly and learn quickly from those lessons. Yeah. Don't be desperate to hold on to something, to an idea, you know, to a solution that may not work out. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. Ray, it's been, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for sharing all your knowledge and everything that you've learned in years in real estate with us. And it's been a Thanks pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate how, it. It's fun. How can people reach you if they want to learn more about you or about Suba? Oh, God, that's a good question. Because you know what? I'm not, believe it or not, I'm not on any social media. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not on, I'm not on Facebook or Instagram. I'm, I am on, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm not terribly active. But if they want to find me, I'm going to tell them to go through you. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> they can go through me. Or they can visit Suba's website right. to yep, learn more about right. the company. That's right. And they can probably find my email there. Or find you on LinkedIn. All right. Well, Ray, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very, very much. This was fun. Thanks a lot. Thank you.